You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. The only people for me are the mad ones. The world is filled with the boring and the barely conscious. Misery loves company. But we don't have to live this way. Jessica and I are here to talk to those the system rejects, to radicals and thought criminals. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but push the boundaries of acceptable discourse. Those who stare reality in the face and dare it to be different. History isn't made by the timid, and fun is not had by the perpetually afraid. We are the mad ones. So let's get to it. Welcome to the mad ones. I'm your always searching, always reading, always tired host, Cam Harless. And with me, as always, is your intelligent, curious, and the best question asker I know, hostess, Miss Jessica Green. How are you doing? How Jessica? do you do? <laughs> I'm good. I usually have a cup that I'm sipping during this time, but I got in just before we started the show and I didn't have time to get a cup. So if my husband's listening, maybe he'll bring me coffee. Kevin, bring her coffee. Kevin. Um, spe- speaking of coffee, though, we do have a coffee sponsor, which is... Yes, um, we do run your mouth coffee if you go to rymcoffee.com uh you can get their bourbon barrel aged coffee which is just incredible it smells like heaven and tastes even better um if you use promo code the mad ones you can get 10 percent off in addition to that we also have uh beef jerky beef jerky sponsor righteous mm-hmm. felon righteousfelon.com almost the same promo code mad ones you can get 10 percent off of their incredible beef jerky uh, my favorite, I believe, is the uh, Voodoo Child, which is mm. way hotter than you should try, probably. Um, <laughs> I, I believe it's Ghost, but no, it's Carolina Reaper. Incredible stuff, though. Uh, check that out as well. And one one quick reminder. Uh, I mentioned last week that we're starting a Bible study, and we're going to walk through John over the next 21 days. Mm-hmm. That starts tomorrow. If you The reading does. If you'd like to join us, hit me up on Twitter at Cam Harless. And I will get you into that Discord group, and we'll start reading the Bible together. So let's do that. Um, but that's that. I shouldn't say anything more because we have uh, probably the guest that I've been most excited to talk about for a long time, because he challenged my understanding of things that I believed my whole life. And you don't run into that very often, and rarely do you read a book or watch a YouTube video and then get to speak to that person. So, joining us tonight is a titan in the world of Christian eschatology, the host of Theopologetics, adjunct professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, and a man whose face pops up on Google for some reason when you search the word hell, uh, the public face of the alternative of an alternative orthodox position on final judgment through the ministry Rethinking Hell, Mr. Chris Date. How you doing? I'm doing really well, and you really touched me with your introduction, so thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. I I have been, I'm not even kidding, I've been excited to talk to you for a while. We've been Facebook friends for a good bit, and I've been in the Rethinking Hell group for a while, but I was just like, you know, eventually, back in the day when we weren't doing um, more spiritual podcasts, and it was all just kind of political stuff, I never would have had a space to have the conversation with you, and I'm so happy that I have that now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like we sh- to get started, um, maybe the best place to start is some of the objections to your view on hell, which is called conditional Im- Im- immortality. I almost always say conditional immorality, 
because I'm bad at this or conditionalism is another term. Uh, could you give like a brief explanation of what that is? And then uh, we can go into how people call you a heretic and uh, all of that stuff. <laughs> well, let me first say, anytime you ask me to cover anything briefly, you're shooting yourself in the foot. I don't do brief, <laughs> but I'll try. Um, and, and actually what I want to start with, what I think will help is if we make sure we're all on the same page about what the traditional view of hell is. Yes. Because we say eternal conscious torment or eternal torment and we just think about the part the, the concept of consciousness and, and and negative experiences while conscious but the doctrine of eternal torment is more than that um mm. you see all genuine christians since the time of christ believe that one day all humankind will have been physically raised from the dead that's true yes. whether you think that the resurrection of the righteous is a thousand years earlier than the rest of the dead if you're a premillennialist and it's but it's equally true if you're an amillennialist or a postmillennialist and think that all humankind will rise together either mm -hmm. way one day all humankind will have come back to physical life and everyone agrees, all Christians agree, that at that point, the saved, those who are in Christ, either because you believe in postmortem repentance and they turn to Christ after death, or if you don't, like me, I don't believe in postmortem repentance, and so I believe that it's where you stand when you die. Either way, if you're in Christ, all of us agree that you go on after being raised to live forever. But what the doctrine of eternal torment says is that that is exactly true of the lost as well. When the lost are raised from the dead, they brought back to physical life, they will remain physically alive forever. So the doctrine of eternal torment is kind of like the doctrine of universalism um, in that both of those views are uh, could be described as a form of unconditional immortality or indiscriminate or universal immortality, meaning that God gives immortality to everybody when he raises from them from the dead, whether they're saved or lost. Then the only really question is, where are you going to live forever in the good place or the bad place, right? Mm -hmm. That help, helps to frame um, an understanding of conditional immortality, because unlike eternal torment and universalism, conditional immortality says that immortality is conditional. It, it, it is only given to those who meet the condition of being saved in Christ. So conditional immortality says that when humankind is raised from the dead, if they are in Christ, if they're covered by the blood of Christ, united to him, like Paul talks about in Romans 8, then they will be made immortal and will live physically forever on a restored earth in a glorified, restored cosmos. Um, with no more pain, no more disease, no more sickness, but nevertheless, bodies with fingers and eyes and ears and all of that. Um, but those that are raised, when they're raised and they're not in Christ, they will not be raised immortal. They will still be mortal. And their punishment or their consequence, depending on how you look at it, um, for their sin, because they're not covered by the blood of Christ, will be death. They will literally die a second time and never live ever again. Now, this view is sometimes also called annihilationism because a lot of us conditionalists are, uh, we have a traditional view of the human soul, meaning that it continues to be conscious and aware between death and resurrection. Um, but if that's true, if, if in the first death only the body dies, but the soul lives on in a manner of speaking, 
Um, we conditionalists believe that in the second death, both body and soul will die, will be destroyed and never live again. And so the whole person is brought to an end and they experience nothing ever again. And so they are in fact annihilated. So that's conditionalism and annihilationism. They're sort of like two sides of the same coin. But the basic gist of it is only the saved are raised immortal, the lost are raised mortal, and they will literally die a second time, and it will be both their bodies and their souls. And I think one of the um, – it was very good and uh, comprehensive, quick answer. I mean, it was – it was quicker than you thought, I think. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I get better and better as I practice it. <laughs> uh, when I started looking into conditionalism rather than eternal conscious torment or universalism, um, well, universalism probably get it worse, but the main objection isn't really about the scripture a lot of times. It's about... Um, suddenly I'm a latte sipping lefty and I only, I, I'm only doing this because emotionally I can't handle it or something like that. When, when I first stumbled upon rethinking hell and, um, Edward Fudge's book, the fire that consumes, I wasn't, it wasn't an emotional thing for me. It was, I was trying to search and find more out more about God. I was trying to find, and, and you know, the concept of hell does irk people. The idea of eternal conscious torment, it, it sounds like a horror movie that's put within the Bible. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've watched, I believe, 99 horror movies for this dumb challenge that I'm in right now as of today. Um, dumb. But <laughs> at this point, 99 in, you go, maybe this was a bad idea. <laughs> um, so there, there's there's obviously the you know guttural human response of well this doesn't seem fair or just this doesn't seem right and it doesn't seem like God and so that wasn't necessarily my starting place because I before that I'd had plenty of time to you know repeat that um, you know we're trying to base our morality off of us rather than God and we don't know God mm -hmm. perfectly so we can't know His justice and it, it's like. Yeah, but it was it, it kind of also felt like I was kind of copping out in some sense because I wasn't looking into it I, because I didn't want to seem like I was making an emotional move rather than a biblical move. Mm -hmm. And so do you come across that a lot that you're you are just some hippie liberal now who doesn't like the Bible or God anymore? Yeah, I would say that's probably the um, the most common reaction. Um, and it's often it's often just implied and not outright stated. So for example, if you've ever um, seen a discussion on the topic of hell between somebody like me and a defender of eternal torment, at some point early on in the discussion, you'll often hear the defender of eternal torment say something like, yeah, I share your, your, your emotional reaction to the doctrine of eternal torment, but gosh, I've just got to believe what God says, you know, as if that's what, <laughs> as if we're doing something different. Um, so that is very common, but just to be very clear number one there are plenty of us myself included for whom emotions if they were involved at all were were keeping us pulled in the direction of eternal torment um mm -hmm. when i was considering this alternative to hell 
I knew that if I ended up embracing it and abandoning the tradition, I would lose friends, I would lose ministry opportunities, there would be churches I couldn't teach or even be members of, uh, mm -hmm. I, there would be schools I couldn't teach at or go to or be a, a student at and on and on it goes. Um, and so I desperately wanted and even to this day, would love to be convinced of the doctrine of eternal torment, uh, eternal torment again, because it would make life a lot easier as a conservative evangelical Christian like I am. But I had to follow scripture where it leads and, and bend my knee to it, even if it meant losing um, clout in the eyes of people I care about, losing relationships and so forth. And I'll add one more thing. For those conditionalists or annihilationists who began to rethink hell because of those emotional concerns, um, and there are plenty of them, but that isn't the end for them. It's not like they say, well, gosh, this just can't be true because I don't like it, so I'm going to find some alternative. No, they thought maybe the scriptures aren't saying what I've been told they say. And so mm -hmm. they go and they do a fresh, deeper look into what the Bible says, mm -hmm. and they find out that scripture says something different than what they'd been told. So it's not about emotions. It's not about being a hippie or sentimental or anything. It's about, it's about embracing what one sees the Bible teaching. Yeah. I think there is another um, emotional aspect to believing in an eternal hell fire as well, because there's a human part of us that wants to believe that the bad guys go there. That's people like Stalin and Hitler are going to get just desserts for what they committed on Earth. And so we like to believe that they're in a place of eternal torment from which they can never escape, despite the fact that they, too, are God's children and made in God's image and, you know possibly at their very last moment of life could have repented. Do I think it happened? Probably not, but it could have happened. And uh, we might see them in, in paradise if that did happen. And I think that that's something the, the human emotion aspect has a very hard time dealing with. I, I think you might be right, but I would just temper that with two thoughts. Number one, I think we need to be extremely careful um, to assume that any particular believer in eternal torment shares that motivation or has that motivation. Um, sure. I'm sure some Christians want to believe that the worst imaginable punishment is eternal torment and that that is what's coming to the kinds of people that you've just mentioned. But we've <laughs> got to be extremely careful not to assume that that's what any given defender of eternal torment is, is, is thinking. But the other thing I want to say is just that that same risk is there even if you're an annihilationist like I am. Because well, for some, for a lot of people, eternal torment in immortal bodies is is the most scary fate possible. But there are plenty mm -hmm. others of us, like myself, who think that actually the more terrifying fate is to be completely obliterated and never live or experience anything ever again. And that's mm -hmm. what I think is awaiting the people, the kinds of people that you've just mentioned. And so mm -hmm. the, that same, you know, somebody could equally level that challenge to me and say, well, you just want Hitler to be annihilated. You don't want him to have the mercy of being alive forever, albeit in torment, you know. That, so we just, we have to be very careful not to make assumptions about who's being driven to what by emotional motivations, you know what I mean? Also, yeah, I think something that I realized while you were saying that too is that we assume that eternal hellfire is the scariest thing imaginable, but we're not God with the resources and mental aspects of God to which there might be something even scarier than that that we haven't even uh, conceived of because we live in a three-dimensional universe. I think that's fair, um, but I do think there's a 
very rich historical tradition of people recognizing how much more terrifying annihilation is. Um, mm -hmm. In the uh, 20th century, there was a there was a poet, an agnostic poet named Philip Larkin, and I would encourage people to check him out, but he's got a poem called Aubade, A-U-B-A-D-E, and in it, he talks about his utter horror at the prospect of dying, not because dying is just a door to another fate that's worse or something like that, but because death is the 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 end from which no, no one ever wakes up he, he, mm -hmm. he speaks of it terrifyingly and and then when he says that religious people try to quench his fear by saying there's more there's an afterlife after death he's like uh it, it, death isn't don't worry death or sorry what, what does he say he says he says people who try to tell me that death is nothing to be feared because it just ends consciousness don't realize that's the very thing that I fear. In fact, the first century Greek historian Plutarch said the same thing. He said that if you were to give the Greek person, any Greek person, the choice between living forever in torment or being annihilated, they would immediately and joyfully embrace being tormented forever because continuing to exist is what life most desperately wants. Um, and, and you see this all throughout history. There's this a rich stream of people who think that annihilation is more terrifying than eternal torment. But of course, that doesn't make it so. Um, the, and really, it doesn't matter anyway. The question isn't, what is the worst imaginable punishment? The question is, what does the Bible say God has deemed the appropriate punishment? Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I think is kind of the linchpin, like you said earlier, between eternal conscious torment and universal reconciliation is the idea of the inherent immortal soul. And that was one of the things that when I started reading some of your work and when I started reading um, The Fire That Consumes, um, just kind of lit up because, you know, at one point Jesus Jesus talks about, um, well, at one point he talks about how you don't fear the one who can kill you, your body, but that can destroy body and soul in hell. That seems pretty clear to me what, what can happen in hell. I mean, I, and so you know, I remember reading that and going and trying to do that, those mental jumps of destroy meaning something other than the clear reading. Um, but the, I, the, okay. So sorry. It's all right. <laughs> um, the, the, the inherent soul, when Jesus talks uh, about how um, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And so once I started reading your work, I started to see that immortality is a gift. It, it seems to read very plainly in the scripture, especially if you look in Genesis 3 and you're looking at the, the tree of life and the fact that they were cut off from it so they wouldn't live forever. You have this idea that it is in fact a gift rather than an inherent state that God can't overcome in some way. That he, he, he has to, you have to stay alive in hell because that's how human beings are made. So could you kind of talk about that um, kind of dualistic view of the human, of human beings and whether or not, I mean, obviously you haven't, but whether or not you found that in scripture or where do you think that came from in the Christian world? Okay. Well, so I want to make 
clear that there's a distinction between what you call dualistic thinking on the one hand and on the other hand thinking the soul is immortal in the sense of never dying um there are plenty of even of people who, who hold to my view of hell who do affirm a dualism of body and soul and they think that when in the first death when a person dies their body dies but their soul continues to be conscious until reunited with the resurrection body um, and then in the second death is when both body and soul will be destroyed now I could certainly talk about why I don't see that picture in scripture. It seems to me that the Bible portrays humans as physical creatures um, with no hope of consciousness beyond death apart from resurrection. But um, there are plenty of conditionalists who would disagree and they would point to texts like Jesus telling the thief on the cross that this day you will be with me in paradise or um, or Paul saying I wish to depart and be with Christ or the 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 uh, divinist the the spiritist at Endor who tells uh, who, who raises Saul, Saul Samuel from the dead to talk to Saul um, there are all these there there are a number of these texts in scripture that arguably do in fact teach a dualistic picture of humanity where we have bodies and we have souls but even if that's what it teaches what it never teaches is that the soul will in fact live forever period because that's the way that God has made it and you gave a good example of one that makes it clear that that, they, that no in fact God can and will destroy some souls in uh, in hell. Um, that word destroy there, by the way, is in some places used to describe a ruining or a wasting or a losing, but not when it's used in the way that it is here, when it's used in what Greek linguists call the act of voice, and when it's used as a transitive verb to describe what one person will do to another person, it always in the Synoptic Gospels means to slay or kill. It's the word that's used to say the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus they didn't want to ruin him or waste him or lose him they wanted to kill him um, and that's what Jesus says God can and will do to the soul in hell so anyway my take is that um, by the time of Christ some of the Jewish population had been so Hellenized, that is, they, they'd become so influenced by Greco-Roman culture, that they, that they did start to believe, some of them, that, uh, that some souls would live, or that, so, that, that even the souls of the damned would live forever. Um, and so you have within the intertestamental Jewish um, corpus of literature, some testimony in, uh, you know, affirming a belief in eternal torment. But you also had uh, Jews that resisted that Hellenizing um, trend. And so, for example, in the um, rabbinic writings uh, shortly after the time of Christ, the, the Talmud, the Mishnah, you, you'll find them talking about um, people who are indeed annihilated in hell um, and, and, and elsewhere. So, so, the, so the question becomes then, what prompted the church to, generally speaking, by and large, go with that more Hellenistic influenced uh, the Hellenism influenced view of the soul um, because you don't find that in the writings of the earliest church fathers if you look at the first and second centuries um, of the church you have people like Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch uh, the Epistle of Barnabas the Didache Irenaeus of Lyon and all of those people I just mentioned they seem to teach my view but then in the latter half of the second century you have converts to Christianity who, who are converting from pagan worldviews that have this view of the immortality or everlastingness of the soul. Like um, uh, to, Augustine? 
Well, he's like 5th century or 4th century, yeah. but prior to him, you have Tertullian, Tatian, Athenagoras. And they're all people that have come to Christianity from those other pagan worldviews. And I think what, and, and yes, and then eventually Augustine did as well. And Augustine was so influential, and rightly so. He was a brilliant mind, even if he got some things wrong. Um, he was so influential that his stamp of approval on the doctrine of eternal torment on the, and the immortality of the soul meant that it became the dominant Christian view even to this day. But the point I'm trying to get at is it seems to me that if the Bible doesn't, in fact, support this view of, of immortal souls in the sense that they will never be destroyed, um, if it doesn't teach that, I think the reason why the church began to, beginning um, around the time of Augustine, is because people came into the faith from pagan worldviews and didn't successfully get rid of all of the baggage that they brought with them. And this happens to everybody. Jessica, I think you are a fairly recent convert to Christianity, if I'm not mistaken. And yep. I bet you that there are still things that you struggle, you don't even, you may not even realize conflict with the Christian faith because you you spent a lot of time in former worldviews, atheism or, or whatever it might have been. Um, mm -hmm. The same was true of me when I became a Christian. And the reason is when we become a Christian from one of these other worldviews, we start to we're able to get rid of some of the baggage and we're able to see clear places where the bible conflicts with what we brought with us into the faith but some of those things don't aren't as immediately clear as others and i mm -hmm. think that these converts to christianity in the early church um they they brought with them the belief that souls are eternal into the future and the past and they're like oh clearly that can't be right because god's the only eternal he's the creator of all humankind and so they knew oh i need to ditch this belief that souls are eternal into the past but they weren't people like the Jewish community that was steeped in the language of scripture. And so when they came to texts that talk about eternal fire and eternal punishment and fire not quenched, they just sort of read those texts as if they're as a support for this thing they already believe in, that souls live on into the future forever. Um, and it takes a real conscious and concerted effort to take off those lenses that you're reading scripture through in order to start to let scripture speak for itself. And all of us that are converts do that successfully to some point, but uh, unsuccessfully to another point. And I think that that's mm -hmm. what ended up bringing this Hellenistic concept of the everlasting soul into Christian thought. But it didn't start out that way. Again, the church fathers of the first and second centuries, by and large, teach my view. That was really long and rambling. I apologize. As no, I said, it's, no, I don't, I don't cover things brief. I wanted to um, maybe ask if you could expand a little bit on the idea of this um, post-mortem salvation. The idea, I, I've never heard that before, that a person can have salvation after they've died. Are you saying that's not the deal? I don't think that's the deal. I don't think you can right. be saved after you die, but but that's not, that's not a commitment that is um, uh, part and parcel of conditionalism. And there are conditionalists and even traditionalists, people who believe in eternal torment, who think that there will be opportunities to be saved even after death. Mm -hmm. um, we in the evangelical church kind of have just accepted that there is no such opportunity. And again, I don't think there is. But I will say this, the biblical support for death being the end of your opportunity is extremely scant. There's very little biblical evidence to support that. The closest thing I could think of would are there are two. One is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, because in that scene, there's this chasm between the good part of Hades and the bad part of Hades. And, yeah. and Jesus, you know, there will nobody will ever be able to cross it. But 
but how much how much he's actually trying to make that point is not at all clear and then there's a text in hebrews where the author says it's appointed a man wants to die and then comes judgment but what he doesn't say is what happens between death and judgment you know and it could right. be that opportunity continues so so this is a question that christians on on both sides of this hell debate the the eternal torment side and the annihilation side um they debate whether or not people will have the opportunity to be saved after you die so is it your belief, just personally, I guess, that when we die, we're in sort of a stasis for a time until there's the last judgment, and then our bodies become resurrected and our souls don't depart from them, that we just sort of wake up at the last judgment? I, I, I want to say that, generally speaking, yes, um, but, but just to clarify, I... Again, this what I have to say about souls in the intermediate state is not particularly germane to conditionalism. I just want to make that clear. Sure. Um, I, there are lots of people that are they have a misunderstanding that to be a conditionalist is to deny uh, an, a conscious intermediate state between death and resurrection. And I want to make it clear that no, the two don't go together hand in hand. You can mm -hmm. easily believe in a conscious intermediate state. But I don't, and it's because I don't think human beings have immaterial souls. Um, when the Bible is uh, translated in ways that talk about souls, I think the original Hebrew and Greek words mean something different than what we think of when we think of soul. Nefesh. So I think, yeah, the nephesh in the, in the, in the Old Testament, that's um, uh, the, the neshef hayah, which the King James translated living soul, just means living creature, living being. And a nephesh mm. often in the Old Testament is just a person, not a person's soul. Um, when biblical authors say, oh, praise God, oh, my soul, they're not trying to tell their, non, their, their immaterial soul to praise God. They're saying, all of me, praise God. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So I think that humans are physical creatures. I think our consciousness depends upon the ongoing functioning of our living brains. Mm -hmm. And when we die and our brains cease to function, we cease to be conscious. And our only hope of ever experiencing anything ever again is resurrection, at which point we'll again be conscious. So yeah, it's, it's as if waking up from sleep, or maybe even a better analogy would be waking up from anesthesia. Because mm -hmm. sleep is often mingled with dreams and, you know, half wakedness. But when you're put under for a surgery, you fall asleep and instantaneously, it seems you're awake again. And I think that's what right. it will be like. Right. Um, not to continue this too long, but because it's not particularly germane to the conversation. Um, but that the verse in um, w w in the synoptics, I, I believe, or is it? it never mind. I'm not going to try to say specifically. But when Jesus looks at the thief and says, "Today you will be with me," and I, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. How do you see that? If you can kind of brief, because it sounds like you see it differently than most other people. So I'm curious how you read that verse. Yeah, so number one, paradise, although there is a stream of intertestamental Judaism which started to use the word paradise to refer to just sort of the blissful presence of God, apart from that intertestamental stream of Judaism, paradise is an earthly existence. It's the garden. Right. And, and it's and it's what awaits us. In fact, if you go to the book of Revelation, it talks about the tree of life being in the paradise of God, if I'm if I'm not misremembering. So I think that paradise is not just the blissful presence of God. It's resurrected blissful presence of God. It's 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 uh, life in the fullness that God intended, which is not in a disembodied state. 
If even if we do go to heaven when we die and we immediately enter the presence of God, that still is a subhuman half existence. We are meant to be embodied creatures, even on dualism. So I take paradise to be the final state, not some sort of subhuman half existence in an intermediate state. So then the question becomes, well, how do I reconcile then what Jesus says, which is you will be with me in paradise this day? Well, remember what I just said a moment ago, that on my view, being resurrected will be like waking up from anesthesia. And mm -hmm. if you imagine that you... Um, uh, that you were put under for surgery at like six in the morning and your surgery was like uh, 12 hours long um, and then you wake up again at 6 p.m., right? Well, you won't realize 12 hours have gone by um, it'll, or actually, you know, let me, let me do it a different way. Let's say that you go to, you, you're put under for surgery at, at like 6 p.m. and you don't wake up again until 6 a.m. Um, mm -hmm. Even though it will be another day in reality, no time will have passed in your mind, right? You went, you fell asleep when you were put under and from your subjective experience, from your subjective perspective, you wake up instantaneously. It's as if you woke up the very day that you went, you were put under when in fact it was 12 hours later, the next uh, in the, in the next day. Well, so just stretch that out to thousands of years. If you, if you die and are immediately unconscious and not just like dreaming, but totally gone unconscious altogether and the next thing you know it's thousands of years later but you haven't experienced any time pass well then i think it will be as if you've been raised on that very day so i think what jesus is doing is he's speaking pastorally and experientially he's saying i don't think he senses the obligation to be to be super scientific about it and be like now don't worry mr thief You'll, you're going to die, but 2,000 years or more from now, you'll be with me in paradise. He doesn't need to do that. He can just say, trust me, today you will be with me in paradise. And from the thief's perspective, that will be true. That's my take on so it. So from the thief to Constantine to myself to someone that exists 200 years in the future from now, we're all going to sort of pass away at the exact same moment and resurrect at the same moment from our perspective which I think is good, um, a little bit of a relief in a way, because the idea of being in some sort of like heavenly waiting room where um, every once in a while someone you knew pops up <laughs> um, is a little bit odd and terrifying in a way, you know, because you would perceive time. Well, I think we'll perceive time in eternity as well. Um, I don't see any reason to not believe that. But, but I agree with you that or the, the way I would think of it is the reason why the prospect of going to heaven immediately when I die isn't altogether comforting for me is because of the language I used earlier. It's a subhuman half existence. Mm -hmm. You know, in that in that parable of Lazarus and the rich man, there's a real there's a real curious word that I think is is interesting. Um, it's in verse 25, Luke 16, 25. Uh, Abraham tells the rich man in your lifetime, you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now that word comforted typically has to do with being consoled in the midst of pain and grief. It's 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 coming beside somebody who's suffering and saying there there's hope, you know, be comforted. Well, if you're in the blissful presence of God, what need is there for comfort? Or to be comforted, yeah. right? Yeah. There would be nothing to be comforted about. But if if we take this as a realistic story and Lazarus is is in a subhuman half existence, yeah, he may be in the presence of God, but he's still not 
he still hasn't achieved what he's desperately waiting for, which is the resurrection. And so I think that, yeah, I, I agree with you. To me, the prospect of going to sleep when I die and, and waking up, even if it's a thousand years later and not experiencing anything between, is a far more comforting thought. Yeah. Well, also because, like, as you would, as you're there and people you know start to pop up, eventually enough time goes by that you realize, oh, some people aren't here. And that would probably be quite painful, I think, to be thinking for as long as it takes for everyone to come in that, hey, a lot of people I know aren't here. And yeah, that just seems like a very scary thought to me. Well, I don't disagree with you. Uh, and I think that problem becomes even more magnified if you think about that same question from the perspective of after resurrection. And this is another reason to at least... Um, consider the possibility that my view of hell might be true because on the traditional view um if let's say that you've got a loved one who dies an atheist and never repents and, ex and experiences saving faith well in eternity a, a trillion years into the future you will be in god's presence but you will know that this loved one is in hell suffering yeah now if that now i'm not saying that there are ways that believers in eternal torment will trip, typically try to deal with that challenge what they'll say is that well you'll see things from god's perspective you'll see the things the way he does and i agree but this is the god who says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked mm -hmm. if i'm made like god if i if i have god's perspective at the resurrection the knowledge that my unbelieving loved ones are suffering in hell will be all the more painful and grievous to me because I'm like God in a way that I wasn't before. And he's the God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know how one could possibly expect to enjoy eternity in the presence of God, knowing that their loved ones are in hell suffering. But if, on the other hand, your unbelieving loved ones, my unbelieving loved ones are destroyed after they're raised from the dead, they're judged, they're sentenced to death, and they're executed or allowed to die, whatever, there will be certainly grieving and mourning going on in the same way that for, you know, quite some time after the losses of two of my unborn children, I grieved and mourned. But yeah. those deaths, as they get further and further into the past, affect me less and less. And given a sufficient amount of time in eternity, I think we can we can move on. Um, we can we can grieve the loss of our unbelieving loved ones in hell, and then move on, knowing that that's behind us and it's glory and bliss in the future. I don't think you can say the same thing if you believe in eternal torment. Mm -hmm. uh, one quick question that came from the chat: uh, Tom asked, uh, "So near death experiences are bogus?" Which has always kind of been my thought, anyway. That near death experiences are kind of silly, but that would be your conclusion as with the kind of concept of the sleeping soul. I, I believe they're bogus in the sense that they're not what they are believed to be. But mm. I don't believe they're bogus in the sense of nothing unusual happening. Um, okay. It seems to me that it, the, in, those, in those final throes of death, the brain does some pretty remarkable things. And... I, and and I'm I'm somebody who thinks it's it's I'm not, I don't rule out the possibility of things like telekinesis and 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 telepathy and things like that. I'm not saying I'm a believer in those things. I'm just saying I don't <laughs> rule those out as possibilities. And just maybe our brains do some really bizarre things at, in those in those moments of death. And maybe what's happening when somebody says they were dead and then they saw things happening that they that they wouldn't couldn't possibly have known, and then they they come they're resuscitated and they can tell what happened. 
I don't know why we sh our first instinct should be to assume that what happened is their soul left their body for a few moments and was able to perceive without eyes and without ears how they could perceive what's going on. I, I, that's certainly a possibility. But why not instead consider the possibility that maybe in those final moments of death, they experience something bizarre like telepathy and they get a vision of what's happening around them in those last moments of death and just think when they're resuscitated that they had those experiences while they were dead when in fact maybe they had them in the vital moments of life i'm not saying that that is the best explanation i'm just saying i don't see how that's any worse an explanation than the idea of a soul leaving a body yeah. so so i just i think something i think weird things happen at death but what i don't think happens is that souls come out of bodies and then get and then come back into them um just what the alternative explanation is is is, a, is an open question in my mind I've always sort of hated the idea that when we die, that we'll be looking down on our family mem members grieving and mourning and being in pain, um, or that my my dead grandmother is somewhere in the ethereal plane watching me. Um, like, how often and when is she watching me? You know, like, <laughs> there's some implications here, you know? Like, so the idea that... Um, you can watch your family mourning you seems like a torture in itself to see your children upset that you're dead and things like that. Well, I don't disagree with you, but the good news is that even if dualism is true, the Bible doesn't seem to indicate that the dead uh, know what's going on here. So mm -hmm. I think most dualist Christians that aren't like, you know, just sort of average ordinary lay Christians, but people that are educated or uh, watch a lot of video shows like yours, I think what they would say is that, um, yes, we're conscious while dead. Yes, our soul becomes separated from our body, um, but it has absolutely no contact with what's going on on earth. Um, you see this, for example, in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the writer talks about how the dead know nothing. They don't have any part in what goes on under the sun. So I think I, I don't want that to be something that makes you avoid or that makes you leave dualism. I think there are good reasons to leave dualism, but I'm not sure that that's one of them. I, I think you could be a dualist and still take comfort knowing that you're, uh, you won't have to witness your loved ones grieving your, your demise. Yeah. I think that one of the things that's um, lost in Christendom kind of as a whole, and I think it's getting better. I think that N.T. Wright's book, uh, Surprised by Hope, was pretty good at bringing this to the forefront. But as I was growing up, I grew up Christian, and everyone always talked about uh, heaven as though we it's, – it's almost like they ignored the resurrection or they made the resurrection spiritual rather than physical. And I feel like that is the great hope. The, the great is. hope is physical resurrection. It is the uh, heaven and earth becoming one and perfected by God again. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's – one of those things that needs to be spoken about more. And I think that that is part of why these conversations about hell or final judgment are also a little bit more confused for some people is because they don't even know necessarily that we're going to be back on earth and back imaging God on earth uh, after he, he returns. 
Yeah, that's the whole reason I started ministry. <laughs> if, if you if you go to theapologetics.com and you go listen to the very first episode from like 2009, it's called uh, Bring Me to Life. It's, it's the um, title of uh, one of Evanescence's songs. And I chose that and I explain in that opening episode that the whole reason I started doing podcasting and ministry and stuff is because I noticed that most Christians around me had their hopes set on going to heaven when they die and not on being raised back to the new life. Um, mm. And uh, and I think that's really tragic because if if you go and read the writings of the church fathers, what you're going to find is that if you read 10 different church fathers, you're going to get about 12 different answers to any one question. <laughs> they disagreed yeah. on lots and lots of things. But you know, one thing they agreed with, and you can find this in writing after writing after writing after writing, is that the resurrection of the flesh is the hope of the Christian. Regardless of whether you think you go to be in the presence of God when you die or not, regardless of um, how much you long for the ailments of this life to be in your past, the, 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 regardless of any of that, the biblical hope and the hope of the early church was in us coming back to physical life, but without all of the weakness and disease and pain and aging and death that we experience and associate with physicality in the here and now. So I'm with you there, Cam. <laughs> um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, there are a a lot of different Christian views on how hell works, how annihilation works. Um, one of the ones that I read recently is I was actually looking into the uh, Orthodox Church's view, and there were several people, like you said, there you have you read ten ten scholars, you get twelve different answers, mm -hmm. same thing. Um, and, and one of the ideas on annihilation that I've heard is one, they say that hell wasn't made for, um, for people. It was made for the devil and the demons for evil. And so yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah. And so the way they conceive annihilation is, and it's, I think it's the same way that Greg Boyd views it, or at least he used to back when I was, uh, listening to his stuff, um, is the idea that when you are, when you're brought in front of God in this resurrected state, if you are not covered by Jesus's blood and made perfect that that love and that presence of God is what ultimately destroys you. And then I it's read another burnt. Orthodox person saying separately, yeah, that's why it's eternal conscious torment because the, the immortal soul doesn't die. And so you're just constantly in the presence of God and it, it hurts. Um, so do you think there's any, I mean, I, I want to talk about the end of the, of the devil and demons in a second. But do you think that there's anything to that or do you think it's a specific kind of place for humans? Well, I would say even if it is that, and I'm open to that, you won't find any biblical support for it. That doesn't mean you'll find biblical contradiction to it. It's just that mm -hmm. the Bible never connects the loving presence of God, the unremitting, unremitting love of God being the means by which he destroys the wicked. You just won't find that. Uh, but maybe it is. But but even if it is, that doesn't change hell being a place. Um, the, the Bible... Uh, the, when it talks about hell, it's using um, the Old Testament picture of the valley of the son of Hinnom. Um, you read about this in Jeremiah 7, 30 and following. It was a place where Molech worshipers would sacrifice their children in fire to the false god, false god Molech or Baal. Um, and God promises one day to make that valley into the valley of slaughter. And he says that that's where his enemies will be slain and their, their dead bodies will be eaten up by scavenging beasts and birds. And in the New Testament, that were, that phrase, Valley of the Son of Hinnom, is truncated down to Gehenna. Um, and that becomes the, what is most often translated to hell in the New Testament. Um, and 
and and what's more, besides the fact that the, the that they're using the name Gehenna, which is the name of a place, um, to refer to hell, there's also the fact that remember we're talking about something that happens after resurrection. So there must be a place where the resurrected lost are in order to be resurrected people. Uh, mm. And so I don't see it. Given all of that, um, I see no reason to assume that there won't actually be a place where the wicked are when they're raised and, and sentenced to death and they're killed or, or allowed to die. However, you might bear that out. So so even if even if. So you're you're describing what might be called an issuant view of hell. It's something that some believers in eternal torment believe. It's something that some conditionalists believe. And the idea is that um, hell, what happens in hell, issues from God's loving presence. And mm -hmm. I think that's possible, but I don't think that would take away from the fact that it would still be a place where people suffer that. Um, but again, I don't see much biblical support. I think it's more of a philosophical or theological argument. If God is love, if everything that God does is an expression of love, then that would have to be true of what happens to the wicked as well in hell. right? Their suffering or their death is induced by the love of God. Um, and there, may, there might be something to that. So now, what, now, I've, go ahead. what I've been told about this um, from my very limited uh, newbie Orthodox view is that... Um, they're taking that view of God from the transfiguration when God takes his disciples onto the mountain and shows him or shows them um, just like a small part of what God's actual glory looks like. And it freaks them out. They fall down. They're, you know, uh, choking and, and unable to like look at him in his presence. And I think that there are, are people who connect the idea of the resurrection to the transfiguration that it will be for people who are not, as Cam said, who have not put on Christ, um, very difficult for them to stand in the presence of God. Um, what I've been told um, by my priest, and I hope, oh, I hope I get this right in case he listens to this, is that um, separation from God is what is tormenting. Not necessarily that his loving presence is radiating out and burning them, so to speak, but that they cannot stand to be near that type of energy because it is so difficult for just the human soul to be in a presence without, you know, having this blood of Christ on them. And so I think that there is, um, and I'm not going to be able to like, because I'm not like a theologian or anything like that, but I think there is some maybe things that we've missed in that orthodox understanding, not necessarily to say loves, God's loving presence will be what torments souls, only that you will not be any anybody who um, hasn't wanted to be near God in the human life isn't going to necessarily want to be near him after the resurrection either. Yeah, I think that's it's it's sensible. Again, I, I don't see that finding much in the way of support in scripture, but but I do think it's possible. Um, but also, it's not distinctly orthodox. Uh, plenty of Protestants would say exactly that about um, mm -hmm. hell being separation from God, and even self-induced separation from God. I mean, C.S. Lewis is the mm -hmm. one who talked about the doors being locked from the inside. But what I will say is this, um, God is the ground of our very being and, and, and our life. He is the source of our life. Um, when you separate a branch from a tree, what happens to the branch? It, it dies. It withers yeah. and dies because it's no longer connected to the source of its life-giving sap. Well, in the same way, 
I think it's plausible that yes, hell in in hell, the rebellious, the the uh, stubbornly impenitent will refuse God's presence because of the tormenting um, experience of his of his presence. But but by separating themselves from God, what they're doing is separating themselves from the source of life itself, and there could be no possible fate except to die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that is my. Go ahead. No, no. I was, I, I was going to say that uh, that is my understanding. Yes. Um, I, I want to kind of drill into kind of some of the objections that you get and kind of some of the verses that, that you think really um, back your view and uh, kind of in plain reading versus maybe what's been added in some way. Um, but before that, uh, we have been talking about um, spiritual warfare a fair amount. And as I was growing up and just I think I, I'm not saying that my brain and my logic is knows all and is as smart as as God. I'm not saying that, but there was this idea that I kept sitting and thinking about before I ran into this concept, which was why, if you were trying to reconcile all things, if you were trying to make everything perfect again, would you keep the devil and or the the Satan and the demons and all of the rebellious spirits alive and quarantined forever in their rebellious state rather than to destroy them. Do you believe that the, the, the rebellious, the um, Satan and his demons are destroyed ultimately? I do. Yes. Because I think that's what the Bible is, is explicitly teaching. So for example, um, and this is the, possibly weaker of the two evidences I'll give. Um, but Psalm 82, this place uh, where God takes his place in the divine council, there is, I think, an increasing trend amongst um, Old Testament scholars to see this as being um, at, at the, these people in the divine council aren't human judges, as is often thought to be the case, but rather are demonic beings that God has given um, uh, dominion to. And what he says, uh, if that's true, if, if that's what this this psalm is about, he says to these demonic beings um, in verse 7, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Um, so we've got here, again, it assumes that this um, demonic being view of the divine council is, is what's going on. Um, but if it is, then they're going to die too, according to this text. But it's not the only one. Um, the other thing that convinces me of it is, uh, some might say this is a little ironic, but Revelation 20. Because in Revelation 20, what we have is this picture of the devil, the false prophet, and the beast being tormented forever and ever in a lake of fire, and then death and Hades are thrown into it, and then resurrected human beings are thrown into it. Um, And what Christians typically do is they read this as if what John is seeing is the future. But that's not how these visions work anywhere in Scripture. You go all the way back to Joseph, the the first person who has these kinds of dreams. These prophetic dreams about the future tell the future by means of symbols. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean that these symbols, this red dragon in the book of Revelation, which symbolizes the devil, this seven-headed, ten-horned beast that um, is called, uh, or that's the beast and is said to symbolize a great city, um, the false prophet, uh, death and Hades, what does it mean in this symbolic vision that John sees these entities thrown into a lake of fire and tormented forever and ever? Well, there's a really important clue to answering that question right here in the text, and that is that death and Hades are thrown into that lake of fire as well. You see, death and Hades in John's vision 
are every bit as conscious as the devil, the beast, the false prophet, and human beings. You go back to Revelation 6, the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse, and you look at verse 8, and you see, I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Hades is the place of the dead. So, so Death and Hades are being symbolized by a knight and his squire, as it were. And so then in Revelation 20, we see those, that horseman and his squire thrown into a lake of fire and tormented forever and ever, presumably, just like everything else thrown into it. But what does that symbolism mean? Well, just a few verses later, Revelation 21, 4, Hathanatas ukestai eti, death shall be no more. And he's quoting Isaiah 25 uh, verses, uh, I think it's 7 through 9, somewhere in there, where, where God promises to swallow up death forever. Isaiah or, uh, uh, Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And the word destroyed is the Greek word katargeo, which means to cause to cease to happen. So, uh, and, and by the way, he's alluding to Isaiah 25 as well. So you put these pieces together and, and it's right there, just a few verses later after death and Hades are thrown in a lake of fire, that that symbolizes the annihilation of death itself. Nobody will ever die again after the last enemy death has been destroyed. So if death and Hades being thrown into lake of fire and tormented forever and ever along with everything else symbolizes the annihilation, the end of death and the intermediate state, then why wouldn't it mean the end of everything else that John sees thrown into it as well, including the devil, including the beast, including the false prophet? And by the way, a few chapters earlier, when John anticipates the fate of the beast, he says that the fate the beast goes on to destruction um, in, in the more interpretive part of his vision and, uh, of his book and not the part where he's actually describing what he's seeing. So you have a number of different evidences, and there are others we could talk about that seem to indicate that it, you're absolutely right, Cam. God is not going to have this um, dark, gloomy corner of the cosmos in which evil is quarantined for all eternity. In fact, just just think about this. Um, God, who is the, who the Bible says is is holy, holy, holy. God, in whose presence Isaiah thought he was going to die because he was unholy. Why would this God, who so detests sin and refuses to countenance it? Why would he guarantee that sin goes on for eternity by supernaturally granting immortality to evil beings, hmm. right? He, he wouldn't just be tolerating sin for eternity. He would be the one to guarantee it happens forever. No, it seems to make a lot more sense that the thrice holy God of Scripture would finally obliterate sin, unwilling to tolerate it indefinitely. So I agree with you, Cam. There's a host of reasons for rejecting even the eternal torment of the devil and his angels. Yeah, I mean, because that that would be the first thing that I would do, <laughs> you know. Like if if I'm if I'm getting rid of all the evil things, if I'm if I'm bringing in goodness and and bringing perfection to the world that I created to be perfect and to be good, rather than not good, I would definitely start by getting rid of all of the bad seeds, throwing them all into the fire. Well, and speaking of being thrown into the fire, I mean, what does Jesus say in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13? He has the landowner tell his servants, bind up the weeds to be burned. Uh, mm -hmm. The Greek word is katakaio, which means not just burn, but burn up, reduced to ashes. And then a few verses later in Matthew 13, 40, he says, just as the weeds are burned in fire, so will it be at the end of the age uh, that Jesus will come with his angels and throw all evildoers into the fiery furnace, which, by the way, is itself an allusion to the fiery furnace that Daniel was thrown into with his friends by Nebuchadnezzar, or, or maybe it was just Daniel's friends. But anyway, Nebuchadnezzar yeah. had that furnace heated so hot, it was like 10 times hotter than usual, that anybody who even got close to it 
died. They didn't even have to touch the fire. But what happened to those who were supernaturally protected by God? They survived that fire. Well, so what is the point of the furnace of fire? The point of it is to burn things up, to kill things. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 14. So, uh, 13. So yeah, this picture of, the, of, of finally on the last day, throwing all of evil doers into the fire to be burned up is exactly what the Bible seems to be saying is, is what awaits them. And I think that that specific verse that I mentioned earlier about, you know, G Jesus saying, don't fear the man who can kill the body, but that can destroy body and soul in hell. I think that that's an, an important verse because it's not just, it's not just Paul saying it, which I, I love Paul. I, it's, it's the word of God. Um, but it's, it's Jesus saying it. And so when I see these allusions to uh, eternal conscious torment, and then I see Jesus say this, I don't see personally how, because you, you see God perfectly through Jesus. That's how God showed himself to the world. And so I do not see that eternal conscious torment, especially when Jesus said that, as the perfect view of who God is. Well, I agree with you, but you also don't see Jesus killing people either. That's true. That's true. Um, so you got to be careful. Um, but yeah. but then again, Jesus isn't just God. He's God and man, and he came to fulfill a particular purpose. His purpose in, in his incarnation was not to bring judgment, but to bring salvation. Um, mm -hmm. So you wouldn't necessarily expect him to be going around uh, killing people. But <laughs> what I will say is this. In those places in the New Testament where Jesus is in some way... Um, described or even describes himself in connection with final judgment, it's this picture of the obliteration of evil. I mean, go, go back to that passage I just mentioned, Matthew 13. Um, I, I didn't read it then, but I'll read it now. Verse 41, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. So, so there's a place where Jesus does connect himself with judgment, but it's in a way that lends itself to annihilation rather than eternal torment. And the same is true in the book of Revelation and other places. Yeah. Um, so one of the things is, that I'd, I'd love to go through, I mean, if anyone in that's watching live has questions, feel free to throw them in here. But you get a lot of objections and there are a lot of passages that you read very differently um, than those who hold on to the traditional view, uh, which is such a weird thing to call it since, you know, annihilationism is also a traditional view, just not the one that took root. So it's all, whenever I hear someone say that, I'm always like, what? I feel like it lends it a lot of credibility um, that I think that uh, conditional immort immortality also has that credibility. Um, if not more. Um, but what, when you have these verses come up that people say prove eternal conscious torment, could you possibly go through a few of the big ones for us and then give your what, what you think is the correct reading of that? Yeah, so why not go through the big three, as we conditionalists tend to call them? Um, the big three is a phrase that I first heard from my friend Ronnie Demler, um, who was one of a few people who were instrumental in my change of mind on this topic. And what he means by the big three are Matthew 25, 41 and 46, Revelation 14, 9 to 11, and Revelation 20, 10 to 15. 
Um, now, since I've already covered Revelation 20 a little bit, let me just say a couple more things on that, and then I'll go to the other two. Um, but Revelation 20 is this scene where this seven-headed, ten-horned beast, and this red dragon, and this two-horned beast, and this knight and his squire, Death and Hades, and then resurrected human beings, all of those beings are th John sees thrown into the lake of fire and tormented forever and ever. Um, so you have a depiction of everlasting torment. But the question again is, what does that mean? And we've already seen that the, that the fate of death in Hades being thrown into the lake of fire symbolizes the annihilation of death. Well, the same is true of resurrected humanity. You see, um, all throughout the Bible, when these kinds of prophetic visions are interpreted or explained by divine figures, um, like Joseph interprets... Um, the Pharaoh's dream in Genesis 41, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, an angel interprets Daniel's dream, and an angel interprets John's vision in places here too. But whenever this interpretation happens, what they say is things like the seven year or the seven cows are seven years. You see, Pharaoh had this dream where seven healthy cows came up out of the Nile, and then seven sick cows came up out of the Nile and ate the first seven. And if we if if we didn't have uh, Joseph to interpret that dream for us, we would have no idea what what Pharaoh was was dreaming. But Joseph tells Pharaoh the seven cows are seven years, and notice what he's doing. And then he goes on to explain: after seven years of prosperity, there will then be seven years of of drought of, of famine. So. And you see this all throughout those dreams and visions that I've just mentioned, where they'll say the thing in the imagery is the thing in reality, meaning the thing in the imagery symbolizes this thing over here in reality. Well, so now turn your eyes to Revelation 20, and you can see in verse um, uh, 14 that the lake of fire is the second death. You see that again in Revelation 21.8, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, what that means is the lake of fire, the, the, the lake burning with fire and sulfur that John sees in his prophetic vision, symbolizes the second death. Well, this is important for at least two reasons. Firstly, it only functions as interpretation or explanation if you take the perplexing symbolism and you render its meaning in plain language. It wouldn't make any sense. He wouldn't be interpreting anything if, if Joseph had told Pharaoh, the seven cows are, are seven eras of peace and prosperity when what he really meant was seven years. No, they're seven years. It's got to be delivered in plain, straightforward language or else it's not interpretation. Well, what would second death mean in plain, straightforward language? Dying a second time. In fact, it's funny, that very phrase, the second death, I think I heard recently in an episode of um, What We Do in the Shadows, which is a really great <laughs> comedy about vampire life. I love it. But anyway, um, the other reason this is important is because the phrase second death, interestingly, appears in no intertestamental Jew Jewish literature except for one body of literature, and that's what's called the Targums. The Targums were Aramaic translations and commentary on the Hebrew Old Testament. And the phrase second death appears several times in the Targums. In fact, in some of those places, it appears right next to the word Gehenna. Remember that word that we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier that Jesus uses for hell? And in every one of those cases, second death means exactly that, dying a second time and not participating in the life to come. So what John is saying and what God is saying, John in Revelation 2014 and God in Revelation 21.8, is that the lake of fire symbolizes this event that his readers were already familiar with from the Targums, the event at which the resurrected wicked will die a second time. 
not go on living forever in torment. So Revelation 20 not only doesn't challenge conditionalism um, for the reasons I've already given you and others, which it would take us even longer to go through, it mm -hmm. actually supports conditionalism and it challenges the traditional view. Um, the second one of those passages I mentioned was Revelation 4. Uh, I should say, do you have any questions about Revelation 20 before we move on? Not at this point, no. Okay. Very understandable. I, I have a tendency to just keep going and keep going, so I want to make sure you have a chance to butt in. <laughs> Keep going. No, okay. I'll butt in if I need to, believe me. That's a good, skill I have. <laughs> good, I'm glad. So in Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11, John says, Another angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And here's the, the, the key verse, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. All right? So the traditional reading is pretty obvious. John um, is told in this vision that these beast worshipers will uh, have smoke rising from their torment forever and ever. And if smoke is rising from, from torment forever and ever, the torment from which the smoke rises must go on forever and ever. And moreover, it says they have no rest day or night, seemingly indicate that they have ceaseless unrest, ceaseless um, pain or agony or whatever. And as I've already indicated, I think that that is, in fact, the fate that is depicted or portrayed in John's vision. So I'm not saying that John sees something different than that. The point I am arguing for is that this picture of God's enemies being tormented forever and ever um, in the, in the, on the final day is, is symbolism. So the question we have to ask ourselves then, ourselves, is what is the, what does this symbolism mean in Revelation 14, 9 to 11? Well, as it turns out, three of the symbols that are that, that converge here converge again later in the book. Those three symbols are um, drinking God's wrath, uh, being tormented with fire and sulfur, and then smoke from torment rising forever. Well, if you go forward just a few chapters to Re Revelation 18, you see in verse 16 that this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute with Mystery Babylon written on her forehead, she is made to drink God's wrath. She said in two or three places in Revelation 18 to be tormented in fire. And at the beginning of Revelation 19 in verse 3, a hallelujah chorus cries out, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It's identical to Revelation 14, 9 to 11. But what does the, all what do all of these symbols that, that where the harlot is depicted as drinking God's wrath, being tormented in fire and smoke rising from her torment forever, what does all of that symbolize? Well, an angel tells John in Revelation 18:21, "So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more." You see, this picture of Mystery Babylon, she represents a great city. And, and depending upon what eschatological view you have, you're going to think that's different. I'm a so-called partial preterist. I think that the uh, harlot is um, is apostate Judaism. It's, it's apostate uh, Jerusalem. Um, other preterists think that it's Rome. There are a number of different readings. But the point is, what the angel tells John here is that the city symbolized by that harlot is going to be destroyed. Mm. So what do these symbols of, you know, drinking God's wrath, being um, tormented in fire and smoke rising from torment forever, what does that symbolism communicate? Absolute destruction. In fact, this these symbols don't originate in John. They actually come from the Old Testament. And I'll give just one example. Um, the smoke rising forever comes straight out of Isaiah 34.10, where Edom, the city of Edom, 
is promised to be turned into pitch, pitch is tar, burning tar, Edom will be turned into according to Isaiah 34. And then in verse 10, night and day it shall not be quenched, that is the fire that is burning won't be extinguished, its smoke shall go up forever. But nobody thinks that the city of Edom is going to be belching smoke into eternity. This is symbolism communicating destruction. Um, and that's why in Genesis 19, after fire falls down on Sodom and Gomorrah from heaven, Abraham goes out in Genesis 19, 28. He looks down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, which has just been ravaged by fire from heaven. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. You see, this picture of ever-rising smoke in Hebrew thought is very is, is very similar to the, the what what evokes what is evoked in our minds when we see a mushroom cloud. We think obliteration, devastation, destruction, and that's what all of the symbolism communicates. So, Revelation fourteen nine to eleven not only doesn't challenge eternal uh, the doctrine of conditional immortality, it actually supports conditional immortality and challenges eternal torment. Um, any questions or anything from you before we move on to the third of the texts I mentioned? No, that's you're 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 doing good. I'm I'm picking you're on a roll, up. man. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the the third of the big three, or the first in the list that I gave, was Matthew twenty five verses forty one and forty six. Verse 41, Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 46, he says, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So let's take those two verses one by one. This language of eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The way that eternal torment believers read this is the fire is burning the wicked. So the wicked is the, they are the fuel of the fire. And the fire is eternal, meaning it never exhausts its fuel. Ergo, you know, they're thinking, they're reasoning this through. Ergo, the wicked must be there forever to continue to provide the fire with fuel. But we don't need to speculate as to what Jesus means by eternal fire. We can just look at how he used the verse, the, the phrase, because he doesn't use the phrase eternal fire first here. He uses it in Matthew 18, 8 and 9. This is about seven chapters earlier. And in Matthew 18, 8 and 9, he offers a very um, characteristic uh, Hebrew parallelism. And for those reader or viewers who aren't aware, in Hebrew thought, not just language, but thought, um, they would often say the same thing in two similar but different ways. Mm -hmm. And the reason for offering two somewhat similar but different ways of saying the same thing is to drive the point home and to make it clear what the person is saying. Well, so what we see in verse 8 is, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. The exact same Greek as in Matthew 25, 41. And then verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So you can see pretty clearly that verses 8 and 9 are saying the same thing in two somewhat different ways. And what that means is that the phrase eternal fire in verse 8 is the same thing as Gehenna of fire or hell of fire in verse 9. Well, remember what we said Gehenna is. It's the, it's the valley of the sons of Hinnom. If you go back to Jeremiah 7, um, I'll start reading in verse 31. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, 
to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. And then in verse 32, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere and the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth and none will frighten them away. So when Jesus talks about Gehenna of fire, he's talking about God's destructive fire, the fire by, with which he destroys his enemies. That's what eternal fire is. It's, it's the fire from God, directly from God. Right, that, that The fire that falls down on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 is described as coming from Yahweh in heaven. It's called eternal fire because it's God's fire. It's, it's inextinguishable. You can't stop it. It's, it's powerful. Um, and, and, the, and we know that this is what eternal fire means as well because it's what Jude uses the phrase to mean in Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. He's talking there about the fire that came down and killed the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, in the parallel in 2 Peter 2.6, Peter says that by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So this phrase eternal fire in Matthew 25.41 is not fire that goes on burning forever because the wicked forever provide it with fuel. It's God's fire, divine fire, the fire that is inextinguishable. You can't stop it. You can't resist it. God will destroy his enemies. That is what Jesus is saying when he talks about eternal fire in Matthew 25, 41. And remember, we've already seen that's consistent with the annihilation of the devil and his angels in Revelation 20. It's consistent with the demonic forces um, dying like men in Psalm 82, etc., etc. Well, now we get to verse 46, where he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, if the righteous are the ones who go into eternal life, probably the wicked aren't going into <laughs> eternal life also, right? Right. So unless you want to think that eternal life is some sort of code language that means something other than eternal life, and that is what a lot of traditionalists think, um, but unless you think that, your first instinct would be to think that the eternal punishment is, is the, the punishment of death. And in fact, um, you see, when, when, uh, when governments execute people, the punishment is not the process of dying. If the punishment of execution were the punishment of dying, then death, the death penalty would be far more merciful than life in prison. Right? Mm-hmm. You spend, it only takes a few minutes to die, but boy, it could, you could spend 40 years in prison rotting to death. Right? No, the punishment of capital punishment is no longer having life. Ceasing it's the result. Exist. That's what's that? Ceasing to exist. Or at least ceasing to be alive. Right. Right. Um, well, so from, the, from a from an earthbound perspective, you cease to exist on Earth. You can no longer right. be, behave here in any way. That's right. So punishment, the punishment of death isn't the punishment of dying. It's the punishment of not having life anymore. So, uh, and in fact, Augustine says this very thing. Augustine, who was a staunch defender of eternal torment, nevertheless says in the city of God that governments around the world and through time uh, measure the duration of capital punishment, not in the time that it takes to die, but Mm -hmm. in the time that one has been removed from the community of the living. Mm -hmm. So if you just go, if you just read this verse at face value... If the wicked aren't going to go into eternal life because the, that's where the righteous are going, and if they're instead going to get eternal punishment, the natural reading would be that their eternal punishment would be the punishment of death. And a, a death that never 
Right, exactly. It's a death that lasts forever. They're never raised again from the dead. In fact, the Greek word kolossus, which is translated punishment, is in several places used in what's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that the, that the New Testament church often used. The, the Greek word kolossus appears in that Septuagint several times to refer to the death penalty. So, um, so yeah, my I, reading of Matt, yeah, go ahead, please. Can I ask, um, I, and in several of these or surrounding verses in Matthew in the, the twenties, uh, you've been bringing them up. I've noticed there's the phrase, the weeping and gnashing of teeth quite mm -hmm. often, which indicates to me a sort of knowledge of one's fate that they're, you're weeping and gnashing your teeth because you are in misery, because you are aware of your fate, whether it be separation from God or burning in an eternal fire, whichever it might be, um, that does indicate to me awareness. Can you mm -hmm. maybe expand on that idea? Yeah, so you said something extremely astute, um, and I, I, I want you to be proud of yourself for, for realizing oh. it. You said, um, it strikes me as people who are lamenting their fate. They've come to, they've mm -hmm. realized what their fate is. And I think that's exactly what's going on with weeping and gnashing. In fact, this is the argument that um, Kim Papaiwano makes in a book called The Geography of Hell. Um, so check that out. Um, but anyway, uh, weeping in scripture and gnashing are not expressions of pain. Weeping is an expression of sadness and um, gnashing is an expression of anger. And the idea is that when the wicked are um, facing the judgment and they realize that they're being excluded from the kingdom of God, they some of them will be sad, others will be angry, probably some of them both, because mm -hmm. they realize they are being finally excluded forever from the kingdom of God. But the question becomes then, does that weeping and gnashing go on eternally? Well, what I would argue is that in the very context in which that kind of language is used, it's clear it won't go on forever. So, for example, one place that weeping and gnashing is used is in Matthew 13, 42. Um, the Son of Man in verse 41 says he will, he will uh, send his angels and they will throw all evildoers into the fiery furnace. And then verse 42, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But remember what he has just done. He is interpreting a parable that he's given. And in that parable, what happens to the things that represent the wicked, namely the weeds? They are burned up, reduced to ash. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's what the fiery furnace does too. It kills anyone who doesn't have the saving protection of God. So, so yeah, they will weep and gnash. Um, you, you can imagine they're they're in the proverbial courtroom facing final judgment, and they've tried to defend themselves, but they but God and witnesses and everybody is making it clear: no, you're guilty and you're not covered by the blood of Christ, so your penalty is death. These are, in many cases, people that assumed they were good people and looked down on people who, you know, weren't as good as they were, you know, and these are people who, or maybe they were Jewish and they thought that they just inherited heaven because of their, their, um, their genetics, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And to their shock and horror, they are going to discover that, no, they're being excluded from the kingdom of God for their sins and their stubborn refusal to repent. Okay. And so I think that's when the weeping and gnashing will be. So while we're not saying necessarily that they will have eternal conscious torment for it there is a point where souls become aware that they're going to be excluded and there is an awareness of punishment you're not you, you don't just suddenly snap of a finger you cease to exist without ever realizing you were being punished you are going to realize that you've been excluded 
Yes, you will be raised, not you, but the unbeliever will be raised. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> hope not. Yeah. <laughs> the unbeliever will rise from the dead, be tried, be sentenced to death, be have revealed to them that they are being excluded from the kingdom of God. And not just that, but they will be forever remembered in contempt by God and by his people. And the realization that that's what is about to befall them will be incredibly tormenting, I think, yes. And and and, and I'll add that the process by which they are killed could also be extremely painful. Um, think about the various ways in which capital punishment is administered. You've got very painless ones like the firing squad you uh i, I think it uh, it's i think it might even be webb mealy who's told me who's in the chat right now who told me that the firing squad is an extremely merciful death penalty because if you have 10 trained shooters who all shoot a bullet into a person's heart at the same time it's lights out but compare that to uh uh the electric chair well, you've, you're writhing around in pain for a few moments. Or, or now a it's, lethal injection, well, which can be so much more horrifying if they don't do it right. That's right. right. Or, or think of stoning. Stoning is an incredibly brutal means of capital punishment. You know what's even more brutal than that? Crucifixion. But notice that despite how different each of these inflict pain as part of the process of dying, they all inflict the same punishment death mm -hmm. and so i think that the whole courtroom scene on the resurrection and judgment that will be terrifying for the lost and so too and and their means by which they are killed i think in some cases will be violent and painful as well so it's no it's it's no getting off the hook it's not thanos snapping his fingers and you just sort of turn into ash no you're going to be killed possibly violently so right because i never thought like despite the idea that i don't think it torturing human souls for eternity sounds like something that a loving god would even want to do i do think that it is, is very, made very clear in the bible even in my limited understanding of it that souls are going to understand their punishment they're being punished like you've failed here and that's um a, a terrifying prospect that's something that no human without the blood of christ will survive and only through his uh, grace are we to be saved from that fate and it's something all of us deserve and yeah so it's not as though okay only this is something only evil people only people we've deemed worthy of punishment will receive it's literally we all deserve this but through his uh incredible patience and and never-ending love for us he gives us the means by which to avoid this fate and some people just will not take it. And I think that that's the difference. I think that's really well said. And I think it brings up a really good topic that we could explore if you guys want, which is the very means that you just mentioned, the means by which God makes eternal life um, a, a reality for his people. We Christians in general believe in substitutionary atonement, not necessarily penal substitution. That's a whole nother thing. And I do affirm mm -hmm. that, but some Christians don't. But we do generally all believe in substitutionary atonement, meaning that Jesus did on the cross, he, he bore the consequences of our sin so that ultimately we don't have to face those consequences. Well, think about that for a moment. When we're not talking about hell and we're just talking with people about what Jesus did for us, what do we say Jesus did for us? Died on the cross for us. He died for us. Yeah. So if, if, our, if the consequences of our sin born by him resulted in his death, um, then it seems as if 
those not covered by his blood, either because they uh, refuse him if, if, if one is a non-Calvinist or if one is a Calvinist and don't, doesn't think that he died for them. Either way, if this consequence of sin is death, like the death Jesus died on the cross, you would think that the consequences of sin to the lo- resurrected lost in hell would also be death. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really quite a remarkable and bizarre thing that the church ever embraced this idea that the substitutionary death of Christ um, just prevents us from living forever in pain. That <laughs> doesn't really seem to compute. Yeah. So, Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And that was a critical piece of understanding for me that um, Jesus was not being sent to die on the cross to slake his father's anger, um, that it was the means by which death is defeated. And that, well, those two you know, things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, though. I mean, those of us like me who believe in penal substitution think it is to placate God's anger, and it's the means by which death is defeated. But but I understand that not, not everybody feels the same way, and that's okay. Right, right. <laughs> But also, you remember, Cam, when I was first um, coming to Christianity, how difficult it was for me to accept the idea that um, someone should have to die for me. Yeah. Like, I don't deserve, I don't deserve that. That's why should, why should he have had to die for me? I, I deserve that, you know, and the idea that someone would be tortured so terribly, which, you know, death through crucifixion is certainly very much torture. It's a torturous death. That someone should have to go through that experience because I'm a sinner is is very hard for me to accept. Um, it breaks my heart, to be honest, that that had to happen. And um, I'm not entirely sure where I was going with that. I'm just saying that, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's the, God's grace is very complicated and um, not something that can, like, easily be broken down. And, okay, um, you're a good person. You don't deserve hell. Um, so Jesus died for you it's because you don't deserve hell. No, absolutely not. I deserve death and hell. I mean, and I'm not, you know, by comparison, I'm not all that bad of a person and I deserve death and hell. <laughs> so um, I don't know. It's just very, it's, it's, it's very, these are very complex ideas, I think, yes. um, to understand. Do you find them necessary for a person to have this correct view of whether people are eternally conscious for torment or not critical to your soul's ultimate fate. No, no. Um, very few, I think, people who hold to my view of hell think that it is a, an essential of the faith. Um, in fact, it's it's usually, it's, it's vastly uh, outnumbers, what am I trying to say here? The number of believers in eternal torment who think that view is an essential of the faith vastly yeah. outnumbers the number of people who hold to my view and think it's an essential of the faith. And that's one of the reasons I'm often asked, why why this topic chris you know why why pour so much of your time and energy and talents into this topic and what i say is exactly this issue that you're touching upon um there are certainly essentials of the faith over which Christians ought to divide from people who deny those essentials. Uh, the Trinity, the, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace mm-hmm. through faith alone, the future resurrection. You know, there's, there's this handful of essentials that are definitional of Christianity. And I think we're absolutely right to divide from people that don't affirm those essentials. Of course, how expansive that list of essentials will vary from person to person. But sure. there are no grounds 
there are no biblical and no theological and no historical grounds even for saying that any particular view of hell is an essential of the faith. Um, it's it's really fascinating in those first few centuries of the church that gave us the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian formula, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian mm-hmm. Creed. These early ecumenical creeds were written at a time where all three views of hell were popular. There weren't just believers in eternal torment. There were plenty of people who held to my view, and there were plenty of universalists as well. And what's remarkable is that despite that unanimity, sorry, despite that diversity, the the creeds don't establish any one particular view of hell. Mm-hmm. And, and not only that, you won't find in the early church fathers' writings a condemnation of people who um, hold to other views of hell. Augustine called universalists foolish, but he didn't say they were damned. Um, so, so, so what I'm trying to get at is this is not something over which Christians should divide over. And yet too often it's treated as if it is. Right. And so the reason I put so much time and effort into this is because I'm trying to convince believers in eternal torment that somebody can hold to an alternative view of hell like mine and be as firmly and as staunchly grounded in the essentials of the faith as they are, as firmly committed to the authority of Scripture, such that they should feel comfortable ministering alongside me, fellowshipping with me, worshipping with me, and and locking arm in arm to take the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. Because when mm-hmm. we're fighting each other over this non-essential of the faith, we're, we're limiting our ability to take the life-saving gospel to a dying world. So so I'm hoping that, yes, more people on all sides of this debate, but especially eternal torment, will start to see this as the secondary issue that it is, and we don't need to divide from one another over it. I have encountered, and like I said, I have a very like um, short time that I've been a Christian, so I haven't had an opportunity to study as much as I hopefully will in the years to come. But I noticed that when someone will claim that, um, for example, Jesus loves everybody, that's something that starts a fight immediately because people say, well, no, clearly he doesn't love everybody because if he loved everybody, some people wouldn't be going to hell and some people clearly are going to hell. And so if people go to hell, that means Jesus hates certain people. And this is a, a difficult concept for me to associate a God of unfathomable love with the idea that he hates some of us. And um, so that's why I find this idea that hell is not a place of eternal uh, conscious torment to be very interesting and much more in line with the idea of a God that is a God of unfathomable love, that loves all people, wants their salvation. And ultimately that those who, I guess, don't exist anymore in the fullness of time will have chosen that fate for themselves and not necessarily are, are being done that way by a by an angry god who hates them well you know what I'm i do see what you're saying i understand the sentiment mm-hmm. i don't particularly share it but that's okay what i would just want to encourage you to do is to not assume that all forms of eternal torment are alike in that regard because mm-hmm. um so for example there, there's an author named um joshua butler i think and i think he wrote a book called the skeletons in god's closet now he is a believer in eternal torment but what he will actually argue and i think he he hints at this at least in in his book um annihilation would indeed be the more severe fate 
But by giving the lost immortality and allowing them to go on living forever, just but but not in the bliss uh, that he has in store for his people, that's actually an act of mercy on God's part to the damned. He could just get rid of them. But no, he allows them to go on living just in a poorer quality of life than if they were saved. Now, I'm not saying you should buy that. Um, <laughs> and I certainly don't think it's biblical. But the point I'm getting at is that whether or not God is showing love or hate to the denizens of hell will depend somewhat on each individual person and what they think hell consists of. And not all believers in eternal torment think that it's a place of abject torture. A lot of them, in fact, there's a there's a, a guy who runs a website called Tectonics. His name is J.P. Holding, I think. And he, in a debate with me once, said that um, the language about hell is meant to evoke the concept of honor versus shame and that uh, hell is like being forced to drink warm, flat beer for eternity instead of the <laughs> cool, refreshing beer that we would ordinarily enjoy. Now, that I think it's foolish. <laughs> well, but but the point is, is that's hardly the abject, fiery torture in, in more traditional views of eternal torment. Sure. Yeah. So just make sure if, if you do ultimately and firmly land on my side of this debate, I'll be thrilled, but I hope that you do so because of the biblical data, not because of which view of hell seems, you know, more hateful or whatever. I don't think that kind of reasoning is going to get you very far. So just be careful. So let me ask, um, what are there any other points in um, conditionalism that you think need to be covered that we've we've kind of missed so far? Because I'd like to talk about the good news after that, but I kind of want to see if there's anything you you think needs to be brought forth before we hit that. Well, let's see here. I already mentioned the history a little bit. I talked about, so if people go to the YouTube, uh, the, the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel, they can find a series I'm doing called Conditionalists in History, and you'll find um, videos on Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas. I encourage people to check those out, because what I think that establishes is that this view, see, when, when the Protestant reformers um, began the Reformation, they they weren't only recovering what they thought was the biblical message. They also thought they were recovering what the earliest church fathers taught. And so they were willing to to get rid of centuries of accumulated, you know, Roman Catholic dogma because they thought they were returning not just to the Bible's message, but to the message uh, that was taught by the early church fathers. And I think the same is true of this view of hell. Yes, beginning at the time of Augustine, the church by and large has believed in eternal torment, but I don't think that's the case prior to it. And I think that's an important thing to consider. Um, one thing I suppose might be worth discussing, one last thing maybe before we go on and talk about the good news would be, why do some people associate this with heresy and with cults and things? Yeah, <laughs> um, that is a good question. And I and I, and what I would do is I would point to ultimately the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. You see, in the in the nineteenth century, in that's the eighteen hundreds, both in America and in Europe, um, my view of hell was extremely popular. We don't know this. I mean, it's not something we're taught. But if you if you do like a Google search in Google Books and you set the time frame for 19th century and you look up the phrase conditional immortality or annihilationism, you will find lots and lots and lots of books by Baptists and Congregationalists and Presbyterians and it, 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 lots of people from all different parts, all different denominations, all different parts of, of the American and European worlds 
taught my view. Some thought, in fact, that it was on such a rise that it was growing so quickly that, event, that, that it wouldn't be long before the doctrine of eternal torment was just gone. Well, what happened? Because that it didn't, it wasn't gone, it, it gained favor again. And the reason is because in the late 19th century, um, a couple of things happened. One, um, fundamentalists saw that liberals and modernists were rejecting many essentials of the faith, the, what, what they called the fundamentals of the faith. Um, and what and and uh, among the things they saw liberals and modernists denying, besides the deity of Christ, besides uh, the historicity of Scripture, one of the things they saw those liberals and modernists denying was the doctrine of eternal torment. And so they just assumed that anybody who denies the doctrine of eternal torment is a liberal or a modernist. Or, and here's where the second part of the equation comes in, um, a lot of the popularity of conditional immortality in the 19th century was in what was called the Restorationist movement, uh, the Campbell uh, Millerite movement. Um, there, there are different terms for it. But anyway, these were people who, by and large, were Orthodox Christians who had come from more mainstream denominations like the Baptists or the Congregationalists or whatever. Um, uh, and, and, and they brought with them into this movement a belief in conditional immortality. Well, what branched out of that movement included the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Advent Christians, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Christadelphians. Um, you know, of those different groups I've mentioned, some of them are outright cults and others of them, like the Seventh-day Adventists, are questionable in their denominational beliefs. Um, but and, and so fundamentalists not only saw liberals and modernists denying eternal hell, but they also saw Jehovah's Witnesses and Christadelphians and things like that denying it as well. And so they just thought, this must be one of those essentials of the faith that, that these cultists and these liberals are denying. Mm -hmm. And so they included eternal torment in their list of the fundamentals. And for, to a certain, a certain extent, an under, uh, understandable reason, a lot of people therefore bought into this notion that one of the fundamentals of the faith was belief in eternal torment. Um, thankfully, though, that really only had a, uh, its, its strongest effect in America. It didn't affect Europe as much. And so in Europe, there were still some Christians who embraced conditionalism and passed it on to others. Um, Harold Giabod, John Wenham, John Stott, Basil Atkinson. Um, and, and we're just now, I think, starting to catch back up here in America. But the, anyway, the point of all of that rambling was just to say that the reasons why people tend to think this is heresy really, I think, boiled down to um, essentially propaganda, the propaganda from those fundamentalists who misunderstood what motivated some people to reject eternal torment. Um, if, if you put that aside, there are no justifiable grounds for thinking that eternal torment is an essential to the faith. I, there's just none. <laughs> but anyway, um, anyway, that so that's my explanation for why so many people... Oh, that and... They, they hear from Christian apologists that it's, I mean, you remember how I said earlier in our conversation, we're almost two hours in now, I apologize, but You're good. Early, earlier in our conversation, I said, um, I said, oh, what did I say? I said <laughs> that, uh, <sighs> crud. Well, anyway, I don't remember what I had said, <laughs> but what I was about to say was, um, a lot of people hear, uh, about this view. Oh, I remember what I said. I said, if you, if you ask 
if you hear people uh, defend Eternal Torment with people like me, one of the first things they'll say is, yeah, I, look, I, I don't like the idea of Eternal Torment either, but I've just got to bend my knee to Scripture, right? Well, that's one of the, of the most common things you'll hear them say. Another one of the most common things that you'll hear them say right at the beginning of their presentations is, usually it's Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists and Christadelphians and things who believe this, right? So what's happening is that Christians are hearing apologists talk about this view of hell as if it's emotionalism and sentimentality and if it's something associated with cultists and, li and, and, and liberals. And mm -hmm. so I think those are the reasons why people just have this gut instinctual reaction to my view as if it's heresy. It's, it's not grounded in good reason. It's, it's just a reactionary response that I think is driven by those factors that I just described. So we, we, we just talked about hell for an hour and 42 minutes. So I think that maybe a good, like I said pre previously, a good um, pivot would palette. be to talk about the good news. Palate cleanser. We need a palate <laughs> cleanser <laughs> before I go to bed so I don't lay there with my blanket like this. <laughs> so I would, I, if, if, you're, if you're willing, I'd love you to go through the, the escape plan from annihilationism well i mean it's it's pretty straightforward as far as i can tell um you know john three sixteen, god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life mm -hmm. you see the biblical message as i understand it anyway is that all of us have sinned um and as such all of us have disqualified ourselves from life and from the moment we are conceived, we are dying. Um, we, we don't appear to be until we start to get about my age, and then we start to <laughs> fall apart. But the reality is we're on our death march from the moment we're conceived um, because we're sinners. And because we're sinners, we, um, we can't earn life um, on our own because we've already disqualified ourselves from life. And even if it were... Um, possible to immediately turn from those ways and perfectly obey the, the law of God, even then you would still have the, the you will st still have merited death because of your sins thus far. So there's no, there's no escape from that on one's own, no amount of obedience, no amount of good works, nothing is going to um, free us, rescue us from that fate. But that's exactly why the Bible says God did what he did when he became man and died on the cross for us. Um, the, the, you know, again, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Paul says, if you believe in your heart and confess in your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Um, the, the, the wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it seems, my understanding of the biblical message is that although um, we are hopelessly doomed to death if, if, on our own, if left to our own devices, thankfully God didn't leave us to our own devices. He became incarnate and he lived the perfect life that none of us does. And he died the death that we deserve so that if we just trust in his atoning work on our behalf, we will ultimately live rather than ultimately die. And it's for precisely that reason that we can die confident that that won't be the end of the story for us. 
we will one day rise from the dead. Whether we go to be in the blissful presence of God between death and resurrection or not, one day we will come back to life and we will be rendered immortal. We will no longer ever, ever, ever again die. And more than that, we will also not suffer anymore, at least not in any major ways. You see, the this this idea of immortality and eternal life is something all of us want, even if we claim we don't. And the reason I know that is because so much of the world's population and an increasing amount of it is pouring countless dollars, thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars into transhumanist efforts to mm -hmm. achieve immortality through technology. But guess what? Even if they managed to achieve immortality through technology, it wouldn't deal with the problem of sin. And so you will still have class warfare. The haves who can afford the immortality technology will go on living, and those who cannot will just die and be replaced with another generation. Um, the, uh, the, the, there will be a black market. There will be people who, uh, who um, hunt and, and kill the rich people with the technology to be immortal so they can sell it on the black market to the people that can't afford to pay full price. There will still be racism, and there will still be hatred, and there will still be you know, stealing and... and, and um, persecution and oppression and all of those terrible things mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. the resurrection and immortality that comes through faith in christ is not just immortality and eternal life it's also all of that terrible evil stuff gone and we will enjoy life forever in the way that it's intended to be enjoyed um we'll enjoy the fruits of our labor instead of having it taken from us we'll enjoy uh the life and, and fellowship of our communities rather than experience friction and hatred and violence and on and on and on it goes so the beautiful thing it seems to me about the gospel is that although we are doomed to die and we can't of our own do anything about it god has done something about it and all we have to do to benefit from it is trust in his atoning work on our behalf and that will change us here and it will change us then as well we will be raised immortal we will live forever and we will no longer experience the pain disease and aging and death that so ravages us now that's what i would say <laughs> and and how cool is it the idea of us being on a a perfected earth and being a part of the creation and uh, dominion of the earth of returning to the ideal to actually having all of our parts work i mean that that just sounds great to me because i mean I'm, I'm not in poor health or anything like that but not all of my parts are the way i want them to be and it'd be really nice if they were <laughs> but there's 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 something well, i understand that <laughs> <laughs> there's so there's something yeah. <laughs> incredibly beautiful about the idea of work meaning something. Mm -hmm. There's something incredibly beautiful about being co-laborers with the ultimate artist, the ultimate lover, the ultimate all of this. And so I get excited every day I think about that res resurrection, man. I do too. And if, if I can speculate just a little bit, there's a little bit more that I'm excited about, although it is admittedly speculation. Um, we tend to think, and, and maybe this is one reason why a lot of non-Christians think the idea of eternal life in Christianity is boring. We, we, we sometimes have this picture of just returning to the state that Adam and Eve were in, and then it's just like that forever. We just, we're, we're surrounded by trees and stuff, and, you know, we're naked, and we enjoy, but we're, we're basically just praising God all the time, and then we do, don't, don't do anything else. So you got sort of pictures like that. And to be clear, if that's what God has in store, it will be phenomenal. I don't have any doubt. <laughs> but it seems to me 
that technological advancement and exploration and things aren't innately bad. Um, right. Quite the contrary, it seems to me that God designed reality to be intelligible and to be discovered and understood and explored. Well, so right now, think about the two things more than anything else that prevent us from fully exploring the depth, deepest depths of the ocean or, or fully exploring the distant reaches of the cosmos. Our mortality is one thing that prevents it, and the other thing is our rate of technological advancement. But imagine if in the resurrection and eternal life, um, we are we are able to continue advancing technologically, but without sin, without using the technology for bad reasons, mm -hmm. um, and as part of this um, purpose-giving work that you were talking about, Cam, there's no reason why, given a sufficient amount of time, we won't be able to explore the distant reaches of the cosmos. Maybe we'll be able to learn how to create wormholes and be able to do interstellar travel in, in the blink of an eye. Um, and, and it's not just exploration and technology think about having forever to come up with an infinite ever-growing number of different styles of art of different and unique sports think of how many different kinds of musical instruments and genres of music will be come up with over tri trillions and trillions of years and on and on it goes you see this 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 resurrection and eternal life that cam you're absolutely right to find exciting for that reason alone becomes all the more exciting if you think about all the ways that we will continue to develop and learn and grow in areas of the arts and the sciences and technology and all these things. That to me is extremely exciting. Um, and I really can't even begin to relate to somebody who thinks that eternal life would be boring uh, or would yeah. get boring. I can't even fathom why somebody would even think so. So anyway. Um, and well, it, it makes me think yeah. because, you know, when I was like 11 or 12 years old, and I thought of heaven, I did think, wow, that sounds boring. <laughs> and then I was, and then this is so stupid, but it's, uh, well, I mean, the way I thought is stupid, not the thing I thought, um, because it's kind of the same thing you're talking about. I was like, you know what? When I get to heaven, I'm going to get to have a lightsaber. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you won't use it to kill people with, but you might use it to <laughs> cut limbs off the of trees to make wood or something. Who knows? <laughs> but I mean, that, that, it, that is, the uh, um, technological advancement, being able to see, that's great. And usually our last question for guests is um, based around the fact that right now life is kind of dismal. There's a lot going ar around in the world and there are a lot of depressed people. There are people who've lost their jobs, lost family, um, ended, ended their own lives. And so one of the things we try to push is hope. And so uh, you've given us a lot of hope at the end here. Um, but I was wondering, is there something else that you like personally for you that gives you hope and motivation to carry on in your day-to-day -day life that you might be willing to share with uh, our audience? Um, this might not be what you're expecting or asking for, but I'm going to risk it and say it anyway. I think that the church generally speaking, um, has an unhealthy posture toward uh, toward mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of people in the church who think that 
it's unhelpful to see like a psychiatrist, you know, or a psychotherapist or something. And they will say you shouldn't take, um, you know, uh, there are these drugs called SSRIs, selective serotonin um, uh, reuptake inhibitors, things like Xan, uh, Xanax and um, or sorry, Zoloft and, and stuff like that. And they, and they just have this instinctual gut reaction like, no, you just need to pray. Right. You just need to just trust God and be happy with what God is. Yeah. Do trust God. Do be happy. But look, you take a you take an aspirin when you get a headache you know you 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 uh there's nothing inherently wrong with um psychotherapy and with um medicine meant to help mental health and i will be the first to admit that i take um zoloft every single day um for things having to do with mental health so what i want to encourage everybody here having already explained what i think the biblical ultimate hope is hope in resurrection and eternal life and the blissful presence of god and never-ending exploration and development and all of that all of that should should give people a lot of hope but i also want to encourage people that are watching to be to take their mental health seriously and don't buy the lie that there's something wrong with receiving therapy with, with psychiatry um, and, and, and even being prescribed drugs to help balance your, your, um, your neurochemical uh, state. Because here's the reality. Even if dualism is true, the undeniable reality is that our minds are influenced at the very least by the, chemi the chemicals going on up here. And just like headaches, just like all sorts of ailments that we take medicine for, um, our, our neurochemical state can become disrupted and imbalanced. And it may be that drugs are, are important to resolve that. So yes, have your hope in, in the future, in the return of Christ and the resurrection from the dead, but don't be afraid to seek help even in parts of the world that your church might tell you you shouldn't, namely psychiatry and, and even medicine, because those things might really help you get through day to day in a way that you're not able to now. Mm. I don't in know, is, words, that, is that okay? Yeah, in no, the words it, of it's e literally anything. In the words of Ina Garden, uh, if you can't make your own neurotransmitters at home, uh, store-bought is fine. That's right, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I also, um, I really love the idea that I can exchange the idea of an eternal conscience, fiery torment for eternal space exploration and scientific discovery, <laughs> because that sounds so much better to me. You know, I've got a friend of mine who teaches math. And he said to me once, he said, uh, in math, we, we think there will never be an end to exploring, uh, to, to, to discovering mathematical laws and stuff. And he said, I, uh, he says, the idea of doing math forever and eternity sounds like eternal torment to some people, but it sounds like heaven to me. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. that's, that's the beauty. Each of us have things that we would love to do forever that other people would find, to, you know, absolutely horrible. And who knows what we're going to have the opportunity to do forever. It's a beautiful thought. Those gifts of the spirit possibly continue with us in our um, existence after the fall is corrected. So to think that there won't be in need of physicists and artists is a, uh, you've really changed my mind on that perspective because those are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And of course, because we'll need them in the time to come. I love that. Well, just make sure to distinguish between the spiritual gifts described in the New Testament and, and what you're just talking about, because I think that those spiritual gifts include things like healing and tongues and things that the Bible says will one day pass away. There will be no longer a need for them. So I, I think I hear what you're saying, but uh, maybe spiritual yeah. gifts wouldn't be quite the right phrase for them. But yeah, I agree with maybe. you. That's okay. exciting. Fair enough. 
but but the gifts that we the gifts that we're given are natural talents that we're given from yes. god amen yeah. absolutely yeah. praise god so chris thank you for for coming on my show and and on our show i need to say our sometimes i still slip back into my and it's not eh. right it's mine and jessica's so thank you for coming <laughs> on our show and talking thank about you, comrade. this with us because this is this is a, a heavy area of um interest of mine because i that and um as you you mentioned the uh, divine council that's been a big interest uh in the last year and, you know i need to move into eschatology and revelation and we'll we'll, we'll hit on that a little bit later um but I appreciate you coming on and having that conversation with me. Right now, I'm going to tell everyone where to find you, and you add anything I missed, okay? Okay. Um, after that, I can, I'll can i pull you off. If you want to hang out and talk afterwards, you are more than welcome to. But then I'm going to read all my boring stuff, and so I don't I don't want you just to just sit there and look bored while I do it. So um, <laughs> if you want to follow Chris on Twitter, he is at DateChris, which I it confused me for a second because I kept trying to put your first name first, but... I figured it out. There was already um, a Chris date, so. <laughs> um, you also have uh, your work that you do with Rethinking Hell, which uh, do you are you still doing um, weekly live Rethinking mm -hmm. Hell? Well, it's not streams? every week; it's every other week. Yeah, so every, every other, other Monday okay. at six p.m. Pacific, I do Rethinking Hell live, and then the alternating Mondays, I do my own show. Right, which the other show is called The Apologetics. You mm -hmm. can find Rethinking Hell at RethinkingHell.com. Um, I'm sure it's on every podcast platform as well. Um, I don't know why it wouldn't be. And also, wait, is it missing something? Just look well, for it. You'll find it. <laughs> you'll find it. Exactly. It's at the very <laughs> least in iTunes. I think we've got it in Spotify now. Maybe. I, I don't know. There's, there's a few places, but it's not hard to find. And don't, don't forget to check out his other show, The Apologetics. Every time I tried to type it, I would try to put that L in as if I was writing theology. And so I kept having to <laughs> delete it and start over. Uh, you can find that at theapologetics.com. Is there anything else I missed or any, anything else you want to point people to? Um, maybe go to Amazon.com slash author slash Chris Date because I do have a few books and I've got more upcoming that I'd love for people to get their hands on a copy of. Um, and it's not just hell. Um, I also have a book on uh, Calvinism. It's a two views debate book. I also have a two views debate book in which I defend the deity of Christ from a Unitarian named Dale, Dale Tuggy. And um, I am now working on a book with Paul Copan. We're doing a two views on hell book that will, I think, be groundbreaking for the genre of multi-view literature. Um, so if people just check out my Amazon author page and be on the lookout for that, they'll be able to get that when it comes out. And I'd love for people to, to get their hands on my other books as well. Awesome. I will I will type that out and put it into the, Thanks, into the show notes. I've got, every, I've got Rethinking Hell and... Uh, uh, Edward Fudge's book and all of that down there as well. Um, but with that, thank you so much for coming on again. I appreciate you. I appreciate um, dissenting viewpoints. Especially, it's nicer when I I I agree with them. But I appreciate <laughs> I, I appreciate them nonetheless uh, because in the very least, a dissenting viewpoint uh, lets you question your own biases. It lets you question where you may be off the, the road or you've settled yourself in the wrong place. And so in the very least, if people don't all think, oh, conditional immortality is the, the way to go, they now have to think. And I appreciate the heck out of that. Me too. 
And it, it was <laughs> my honor. Seriously, I, I really appreciate, especially your very kind words when you introduced introduced me. I was on the verge of tears, so thank you. I appreciate oh, it. It's been an yeah. honor being here. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm I, I'm gonna let you go. Thank you so much. And then I'm gonna read this thank other you, junk. God bless you guys. <laughs> See ya. All right. So for the rest of you, um, we have some. We're moving out of spooky season, and we're moving into November. And with November comes a new time. So next Wednesday, we will not be streaming at 10 p.m. You can watch it at 10 p.m. if, if you want. But we are moving to 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. So more of you who want to go to sleep at a more reasonable hour are going to be much happier starting next week. With next week, we start with uh, Dr. Robert Hayes, who is a nuclear uh, professor of nuclear engineering. I came across him on TikTok. And it was and the reason I came across him was because he was talking about nuclear science stuff and I was kind of somewhat interested. But then someone started to give him crap about having a wall with crosses on it. And so they were saying you can't be a Christian and a scientist. And so he rebutted that and I found it fascinating. And so he'll be on next week. After that, we have Dr. Rebecca Simon, who is a pirate historian, not spiritual, will just be a fun episode. Um, following that, Dr. Kate Cheryl will be back to talk about um, Gothic spiritualism and that 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 era of human history where the Victorians were really into trying to talk to dead people. And then finally, the one one that I'm, I'm excited about for completely different reasons of any on this list, we're talking to Shannon Ainsley, who was a surfer who was attacked by two great white sharks at the same time. And it was filmed and he lived to tell the tale. Um, not to mention that later on, so he was stalked by orcas. So it's just, I just want to talk to someone who's bitten bitten by a shark. Grade a, a badass. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's next month. I'm very excited about it. And then Christmas, Christmas is going to be so great. So uh, you just wait. Uh, beyond that, again, if you want to join our Bible study, our walk through John, we start reading that with chapter one tomorrow. If you would like to... Uh, if you'd like to come in and do that and partake in, uh, we're going to do some Zoom calls to go over stuff. Hit me up on Twitter at Cam Harless. Uh, Jessica, you can always reach out to her on Twitter as well at Soup Canarchist. Um, Run Your Mouth Coffee, rymcoffee.com, promo code the Mad Ones. RighteousFelon.com, promo code Mad Ones. Uh, we are on, if you're not, if you're listening, you can watch us on YouTube live and you can comment. And some of those comments can make it onto the screen. They only make it onto the screen when I'm not engrossed in the conversation. So we try <laughs> our best. Um, so that's youtube.com slash the mad ones. We're also on Rockfin. Same. Uh, if you want to support us, we do this for free. We do this out of our pocket and we would love to have you join us and help us along and paying for all the things that we pay for to make this happen patreon.com slash the mad ones uh, also pick up a shirt we're the mad ones.com slash store but beyond that thank you for joining us thank you for listening and uh as always you have a chance to be in the be a light in the world so uh go light it up <laughs>